Oh, I'm sorry. Did I break your concentration? Somewhere between science and superstition. We have such sights to show you. Welcome to Strange Eons Radio. That's Eric over there. Hello. That is Vanessa over there. Hello. That makes me Kelly. Surprise, we're still Zooming, you guys. <laughs> we just love it so... No, wait. <laughs> out of an out of abundance of caution, we have decided one more week of Zooming, but we will be back to regular next week. Um, I am COVID negative, my friends. So Yay. took my test this morning and... I'm all clear, so I'll be able to uh, rejoin humanity instead of <laughs> being one of the unclean, oozing <laughs> filth. So, yeah, you still look a little pale. Oh, there's a shot to be taken there, but I'll just let it lay. <laughs> Vanessa, that's my natural coloring from being stuck in the house for two fucking weeks. <laughs> I guess normally I see you probably had a glass or two of wine, so your face is a little bit more rosy. <laughs> Not so pale and distressed. Man, and we record this at 10.30 in the morning, so you know that glass <laughs> to a wine, boy. Um, Eric. Yes. You were on uh, one of our favorite podcasts just recently. CZ Media? Yes. Hey, with Carlos. Yeah, that was fun. We talked uh, movies, <laughs> a lot of movies, and uh, yeah, you know how he is on his site, just a whole bunch of other random stuff. But uh, definitely movie centric. So it's, it was fun. Pretty good. That's cool. He's got a cool place, doesn't he? Oh, geez, man. Some of his yeah. autographs, like, holy shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's really nice. And he's got a, I had problems with his microphone things. I adjust it the right height. <laughs> but uh, that was, but that was fun because that got amusing. And it, it probably will end up in the, uh, the way he cuts his stuff, as in not at all, it'll probably end up in the final <laughs> podcast as well. Um, so by the time you, the listener, are listening to this, I think that episode will have been out last Monday already. Yeah. So yeah. cool. I can't wait to hear it. And then Vanessa, are you going to be going? Um, yeah. So the plan is hopefully um, sometime this week we'll do a recording and I'll, I'll experience what you, you bros have experienced. I know. It's probably not going to be nearly as much fun, though. No, I, I can't. I well, mean, you're a chick. I'm a chick, first of all. I mean, it I won't have... be as much fun for Carlos. Uh, I think Carlos will have a <laughs> wonderful time. So I'm not sure what he's going to do. Like, you know, is he just going to show up and be like, let's drink? And they're going to be like, cool, now I'm good. No, I don't think it's anything like that. In he fact, Eric, care. I'd be surprised. Did you have anything to drink? I had a glass of wine. Oh, you did? Okay. Oh, but yeah, that's... But no, he's completely respectful of that. He doesn't care. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, he called Kelly a lightweight, which I was like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> Kelly can drink. I mean, <laughs> Kelly is a smaller human being than Carlos. <laughs> Maybe it's I don't think I don't think I am. I, I don't think I am. But um, yeah. last time I was at Carlos, we um, 
we got so drunk that we lost the remote for his TV and then <laughs> tore apart his huge sectional couch trying to find it. And we kept on moving things and seeing something happen on the TV screen. And we're like, God damn it, it's it's around here somewhere. <laughs> so, one of the uh, one of the best times I've ever had. Uh, one of the other things I realized about him, he had to actually point it out to me, but it it made sense was that um, Carlos doesn't swear. Oh, that's interesting. Oh, really? And I, I was like, I'm, you know me, I've got a filthy mouth. And um, at one point he said something about it. And I, I just kind of looked back in my head and I was like, I've never heard him swear. And yeah, he, he just doesn't swear. Wow, that's incredible. There, you know, every once in a while you run past somebody and you're like, oh man, am I a bad person? Yes, you <laughs> are, Vanessa. I, I was just thinking that because Vanessa, you've got the mouth of a sailor. So you're going to be down there just filthying up his show. So I didn't yeah, know. yeah, no, I did a couple times on, <laughs> on there. So I'll see. <laughs> I didn't know I swear as much as I do until my mom listened to this podcast. You <laughs> <laughs> swear an awful lot. And I was right. like, I know I occasionally swear when I teach, but. It's oh, fun. wow. <laughs> yeah. It's for emphasis. Well, um, Enough about Carlos. CZ Media, everybody. Uh, the CZ Media podcast, if you want to listen to his stuff, which is really cool. And it's mostly Seattle-centric interviews and stuff like that. Yeah. And the interviews are not even interviews. They're almost stream of consciousness. Yeah. It's just, just a, a couple of guys. Yeah. And, and it's, really, it's really fun to listen to, I think. Um, since I have been sick all week, I just decided that I was going to, uh, to, to watch whatever movie I ever wanted to watch. Here's the, oh, thing wow. about, here's the thing about my mom and most mothers in America. Um, my mom, when I was growing up, was like, there is no way Kelly is going to see a boob. <laughs> because, because the last thing I want as he grows up is to him for him to become um, a respectful human being with a normal sex life. Right. <laughs> I, I don't want him to ever see a boob. You'd be afraid but, of that. But decapitations, <laughs> not a problem at all. So my mom was just like, here, have all the horror you want, but there's no, no boob, no bare breast shall play on our television. So uh, with that in mind, I have seen more 80s titty this week <laughs> oh my God. than I have in my entire childhood of the <laughs> 80s, because I just decided to look and, and download every single movie that I had ever wanted to see while I was walking through the video store that my mom oh, never would let me see. That uh, must be some uh, real shit, some yeah. real shit, but also a lot of fun and um, a, a lot of bullshit that we'd never be able to, to make again. <laughs> what, what genre are these movies? Like what? Well, a lot of them were um, high school comedies, you know, oh. uh, the Porky's type ripoff movies and stuff like that. Gotcha. Um, Really, really stupid. I don't really want to talk about those. I just wanted everyone to know. I've seen a boob was... now, so I am cool. <laughs> I know what you guys are talking as... about now. Okay, great. Were they as good as you always imagined? It, yeah, I was like, you know what? They look just like I thought they would. Sure. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, the 80s had some nice knockers sure. floating around there, too. So, What I do want to talk about is... Um, Something that uh, Vanessa, you saw and that you hated, and then I saw, and I think that I liked quite a bit, and that was called Resident Evil Welcome to Raccoon City. Really? Now, 
I will not say this is a good movie. Okay, there we go. <laughs> but when you're, you know, couch bound and you're feeling sick and yeah. you decide to put on Resident Evil, I thought it was far and away the best of the Resident Evil movies for sure. I haven't seen enough of the Resident Evil movies to say either yeah. way, but it's way truer. Like it does feel true to the video game. It feels like they care a lot. I was and, like, oh, whoever yeah. wrote this played the game. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And the set design really feels fucking great. Like they, they make it feel right. It was just more the story and dialogue that I was like, Ooh, oh, the <laughs> acting is trash. It's pretty um, bad. The but story, no. <laughs> the story I, I felt, I, I thought it felt very similar to the first two games and, uh, you know, yes. also, also showing my age. Resident Evil games on PlayStation, the PlayStation one. That's about the last time I played a video game. So, oh my, yeah. So <laughs> I'm not, I'm not up on all of the, the new game systems and the new versions of Resident Evil and all that. But this movie spoke to me as a, as a person who was playing that game in his twenties. That's so awesome. I, I had a good time with it. I'm so glad. Well, you know what? I can see that being a really fun film for when you feel like trash and you're like, barely conscious yeah <laughs> just seeing this crazy <laughs> shit happening like that that actually would be pretty pretty fun i i didn't hate it like it definitely wasn't antlers antlers like made me mad <laughs> um it it was you know in retrospect i think it was actually a pretty fun movie it's just a bad bad movie <laughs> Uh, as an aside, um, not talking about a second movie here, but I did rent Antlers. I ended up doing a lot of housework while it was on and um, <laughs> and then just stuck it through for the last 20 minutes or so, which I thought were great. Yeah, so, the last 20 yes, minutes that's, yeah. are probably the only... I, I think all the people that love the movie only remember the last 20 minutes. <laughs> remember, uh, that has been my theory for a long yep. time. If you've got a good third act, a lot of people will go, man, I love that movie. Yep. So. Interesting. The Ooh. inverse is true as well. Great movie. Uh, if it ends poorly, nobody gives a crap about the rest. Right. Yeah. Huh. Maybe that's why I disagree with so many people about movies. It's all <laughs> it's all making sense now. <laughs> um, well, uh, Kelly, you got me addicted to a show, which I am almost caught up on. Um, Yellow Jackets. <laughs> Yeah. So it, it took me a few episodes to feel like I was really immersed in it and, you know, really like excited about the characters, but it feels like it's in that same kind of genre of Lost and it's getting a lot of things that I think Lost wasn't doing right. Right. And I just really hope that they keep not sucking. Um, I haven't watched episode nine yet, so I'm up oh, through eight. I haven't either. So. I have, I subscribed to my 30 day thing for Showtime just yesterday. Oh, I will be starting that probably today or tomorrow. Damn, it looks good. That's going to be one of those shows. Are you going to watch it with your wife? Probably. I think, I think she would like it. Too bad. Cause otherwise you just sit there for the next (laughs) nine hours (laughs) and watch all of it. It's, it's really uh, compelling. It's such a soap opera. (laughs) Oh, okay, cool. So it has a lot of, a lot in common with Lost. As far as not not the same story, but I mean, it's a feel. I mean, yeah. I guess a little bit of that. It feels to me very much like um, Lord of the Flies with mm-hmm. girls. Yeah, it does. And it, it feels like lost in the structure because you're hopping back and forth in time. Oh, right. That's cool. the main thing. Right. 
but then, you know, like whatever it was, the so, sometime in the middle episodes, suddenly they throw something supernatural in there and you're like, what is that what I'm watching? <laughs> oh, hello, <laughs> kitty cat. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> A cat has entered. Yes. <laughs> hey, buddy. It's Luna. Hello, Luna. <laughs> Good girl. Um, Eric? Or Vanessa? No, just kidding. I, I murmurs. <laughs> I, I, I've got to talk of what continues to be one of my favorite, if not the single best adaptation of an 80s movie put into modern times, Karate Kid season four. Cobra uh, Kai. God, that is such an amazing show. Oh. And four seasons in, it still hits those points where you're like, I'm sorry, you're doing what now? <laughs> Holy yeah. shit. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, talk about a soap opera. Oh, oh my God. Yes. It's so enjoyable, though. Mm -hmm. I I just finished um, season four. Have you gotten all the way through it yet? Or you just start? Yeah. Yeah. So, so good. Yeah. Yeah. The the abilities to switch how you feel about certain characters or damn near any character from episode to episode. Yeah. It's like, oh, man, I hate this. Oh, this is the greatest character on the show. (laughs) it's it is pretty it's such a good empathy machine um the i think this season for me the girl who i was really really hating the on the cobra kai girl i I just hated her and now i'm like she's got a tough she's got a tough life (laughs) yeah yeah they do that really well like hawk hawk was such a just a bully asshole yeah and now he's Okay. All right. I like this guy. It's just, yeah, he's, he's, you it's know, incredible. he's working things out. Yeah. I wonder, <clears throat> do you think the strength of this show is that the movie, I mean, the series that it's based on is one thing, but even the initial movie is such a black and white hmm. storyline of yeah. good versus evil, basically. Yeah. And they, you know, they basically went back to that and said, no, we're not going to make it good versus evil at all. Everybody's good and everybody's evil. Yeah. And and they had such a great uh, starting point to to drag things around. It's I think it's the difference between that and like Book of Boba Fett, where they're doing exactly the wrong things, in my opinion. I, right. I like this second episode better, but I'm just like, I don't know if I can even be bothered to continue watching my favorite star wars character sort of like whoever wrote this you know i'm sure favreau or whoever joined him with it it's like you know who i really 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 love the tuscan raiders we need to do a (laughs) series about them but i don't think i could sell it that way so here's what we're gonna do yeah (laughs) it's like okay I never cared about the Tuscan Raiders, and now I've seen an awful lot. But I, I think you're right, Kelly. Like I think that another cat. Yeah, it's a strong starting point of black and white, and the, it's such a powerful thing to be able to keep going back and referencing how black and white it was, and then right. making fun of that. It's so great. Like every time they show back to the movies with like the same characters, just being like, oh, "I'm evil," and then <laughs> and now you know, and you're like, "Oh." But they're not. They make sandwiches weird or whatever. <laughs> there's also something, there's a real um, sense of time passing in that show when you can mm-hmm. show 
a flashback from 30 years ago and it's the same actors, you know, that's so, crazy. Yeah. so wild. And you can tell that there's a combination of talent and somebody's really good at talking people into doing things because they have had like every actor yeah. from the original series in it. They haven't had to substitute any of the primary people. It's just like, holy crap, guys. Yeah. I think after that first season, they realized, you know, hey, this is a show that I would love to be a part of. And yeah. I think Elizabeth Shue must have been the hardest one to get. Yeah, she showed up for, I think it's season two for a little yeah, bit. Yeah, a couple, couple episodes. Well, there. let's face it. Elizabeth Shue's been the only person who's been steadily acting since right. that show. So, you know, she was also in The Boys for an entire yeah. season, I'm sure, you know, yeah. while they were trying to get her. So I'm sure there was scheduling conflicts. Yeah. Yeah, I, think done, I would say she's been steadily acting in much larger stuff. Because the two Cobra Kai guys, I was curious, well, what did they do since Karate Kid? Holy crap, man. The, uh, I forgot his name. The original sensei from Karate Kid 1 has like 200 plus credits. Wow. And Reese, the, uh, you mean? What's that? Reese, are you talking yeah. about? Yeah. Oh, really? And the, uh, so it's just, but yeah, they're all like, Movie they, of the week or TV stuff. Elizabeth Shue's actually working in some pretty big stuff. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, she's like a named character and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that brings me then to the next thing I want to talk about. I saw it a while ago, but I never really spoke about it here, although you guys did. And that is the new Ghostbusters movie, which is oh, streaming sure. now. I have not seen this. Is oh, it it's streaming it. now, though? Oh, I thought yeah. so I'm oh, that's, that's um, okay. I'm fascinated. I want to know what you think. Uh, well... I liked it. Um, I liked it a lot. And I think I might have liked it more than the original Ghostbusters movies, because I told Eric I'm not a huge Ghostbusters fan. Right. But the thing is, is if you if you're saying you like Ghostbusters and you love this because it feels like Ghostbusters, you don't understand Ghostbusters at all. <laughs> this new movie, I mean, the shitty female remake Ghostbusters. That was more like a Ghostbusters movie than this was. It was adult, crass humor. You know, it wasn't done very well. But this one, I think people are confusing with loving it because it feels like an 80s Spielberg movie. And they're like, it's it's bringing me back to that time. But it doesn't feel like a Ghostbusters movie at all. It's practically made for children, which we loved Ghostbusters as kids, but that was not a children's movie Mm -hmm. and uh this felt very much like you know the goonies or et even and so i i mean i really liked it because of that and because i like those kind of movies a little more i i think i liked it better than the original two ghostbusters movies wow i you know i feel like i'd heard from other people that their kids really really liked it and people were defending it a lot on the merits of like my daughter saw this and it was so impactful and we loved right. watching it together and that makes a lot of sense then if they're making it really aimed at the audience it probably should be aimed at yeah, yeah. it was very much this is a very much a family movie and you wouldn't call the female ghostbusters a family movie yeah no. so i would call it a bad movie i would call it a bad movie as well but it was also, but maybe not the feeling as much, but it tied into the originals a lot more with the bringing back Gozer and the the dogs this, and the this the new thing. one, yeah, yeah, the new one did. Um, 
But yeah, I remember watching the uh, reboot and then going back and watch the original and both like, I thought this was a lot funnier <laughs> than it is right now. It's just, huh. Yeah. I mean, I still think that the original movies have some really great moments and some really great oh, yeah. scenes. What, what it really has is some, some really good writing, you know, and, and some good lines for all the characters, which the, the remake, the reboot did not at right. all. So anyway, yeah, that's available to stream now. It looks really cool. And um, mm-hmm. everybody's really good. And it. it's, it's very much a, a kid's family. Ghostbusters. Yeah. My my two cents, my hot take. Well, you know, uh, I saw a film that's definitely not a kid's movie. <laughs> and uh, that would be The Power of the Dog. Have either of you seen this? this the, no. Yeah, the new Jane um, Campion film that, uh, that's on a lot of people's top lists, you know, Oscar-y style, like up there film. Um, has Benedict Cumberbatch in it, which is always a huge selling point for me. Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Hard to describe. Is that what you're getting at? <laughs> I don't even. Yeah, it's um, it's an artsy, dramatic, but unsettling movie that was nothing like the trailer. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, the trailer sold me a movie, and I kept waiting for that thing to happen. And instead of, I thought it was going to turn into this sort of like romantic, like male um, story in the vein of um, Brokeback Mountain. And I kept kind of waiting for that to happen. But the music kept telling me that someone was either going to hang somebody, someone was going to skin somebody, (laughs) like literally skin them or somebody, or they were going to fuck. And I could not, I could not tell (laughs) at any given point, which direction it was going to go. And I was like, what is this movie? (laughs) Like, you really have no, the whole time you're just like, I don't know where this is going. And I am so upset. I'm like, just, just drop, just drop the guillotine. Just drop it. I cannot keep waiting for this thing to go. Um, It was, it was incredibly well acted, but it was a very painful movie watching experience that I, I cannot recommend during COVID times. So um, it, it's really an actor's piece. It's it's an opportunity for a lot of people who haven't um, shown um, like uh, what's her name from Spider-Man, Kristen Dunst. She was incredible. It, totally incredible. Never seen her uh, act this much wow. ever. And um, it was great, but I did, did not need that movie in my life. <laughs> Is there a dog in it? Um, yeah, there's, there's a dog, but it's not about a dog at all. That dog has very little to do with the film. Ugh, it's really, happy. yeah, it starts with a voiceover. It's that kind of film. I thought it was going to end with the voiceover and bookmark, but it did not. That's probably my biggest criticism was like, why, why start with a voiceover and then drop it and be like, some producer it. said, we don't know. People aren't going to understand this. Got to add a voice, man. Yeah. So Blade Runner, that sucker. There is a big, there is a lot of question mark um, near the end. And I think that voiceover helps stitch that together. So I would not be surprised if a producer was like, you gotta, you just gotta. I don't think I talked about this one. Did I talk about caveat? I don't Brit- Or Irish, British film? I, I think we have spoken about it, but I don't know if you've spoken about it on the show. I have heard you talk about this. It's weird, man. It's a strange little horror movie. 
uh, that takes place in a a horribly uh, a horrible upkeep on the house these people are living in, or <laughs> the one of the people living in. But it has this really interesting device in it where they've got this weird little stuffed rabbit that has a drum. And when a spirit is present, the rabbit drums. <laughs> so it's sort of like with Silent Hill with the radio. Where it's like, oh, something's about to happen. Uh, and the story is some guy gets talked into coming and sort of, he's, it's, you're going to take care of my sister, whatever the relationship is. And then he gets talked into it. And for some reason, he goes along with being chained. So he can't enter her room and can't do a lot of things. And shit just gets weird from there. I liked it. I could see people absolutely hating it because <laughs> it's so grimy and weird. And there are a few moments that you get that usual. It's like, really? You're going to let this guy chain you up and leave? Yeah. <laughs> so that was... That was my problem with it was the the entire premise is so wackadoodle that yes. you keep you keep going back to that and going, none of this would happen if you if you had done what a normal person would have done at the <laughs> beginning of this movie. And so it's hard to buy into everything else. But I thought that fucking drumming rabbit was terrifying. Yes. I was like, uh, I would absolutely <laughs> buy one of those and have that in the house. <laughs> that thing was creepier than Pick shit. it up and point it on all the things every once yes. in a while. Just, oh. just in case. <laughs> yeah, how that is not a mass-produced Chucky-type doll already, I don't know. But I, I imagine we'll see people at Crypticon selling versions of that. <laughs> that would be cool. Is Caveat a new film? Yeah, uh, last year. Yeah. Okay. Uh, it's on Shutter now, I think, though. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's where I watched it. Yeah. So. It's, wow. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Well, cool. Um, why don't we take a little break, guys? I know that we are coming back to talk about journalists and everything. Uh, let me also just throw this out there, if I haven't pissed off enough people with my uh, Ghostbusters <laughs> thing. Uh, <laughs> the real problem with the book of Boba Fett is that Tamara Morrison and Ming-Na Wen are the worst actors in the show, and they are the lead actors. So it's really tough to like this show. I, I don't know what happened or what's going on, but... So. I think maybe it'll incrementally get better, and by the end you go, oh, that last episode was fantastic. <laughs> that would be great. Yeah, that'd this, be nice. For me, it's just turning into a series that never needed to be. Oh, and, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Anyway, let's take a break. Okay. No, we'll come back and we'll talk to journalists. All righty. The heartwarming moments. The breathtaking adventures. The unforgettable magic and fun. Come on, come on. The pressures are rolling. Now comes Disney's newest movie musical, Newsies. Be a It's the story of newsboys hey, mister? making a living on the streets. Dear me, what is that unpleasant aroma? <laughs> and making headlines of their own. If we don't act together, then we're none. We don't stick together, we're none. Well, what are we supposed to do to the bumps? Kiss them? So what's it gonna be? Join us. Right. Yeah. And we'll be unstoppable. 
This spring, get ready for adventure. Get ready for excitement. Wait till I get you back to the refuge. Get ready for pure Disney fun. It's an all-new entertainment event featuring seven new songs from the Academy Award-winning composer of The Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast. The biggest, noisiest blowout this town's ever seen. And you're invited to come along. Newsies. We have returned. Uh, Eric, this was your genre pick. Yes, yes it was. Because I wanted to talk about... Uh, yes, I picked the genre based on the movie I wanted to talk about. Oh, oh perfect. Working ahead of the system there. Uh, 1971, Cat of Nine Tales. Lori, I want you to take a look and tell me who you see in that car we just passed. There's a man with brown hair. There's somebody else too, but I can't see his face. I'd like to talk to you about the death of Dr. Calabresi. Our photographer, you managed to get a shot of the action. It's as if somebody had pushed the poor bastard out of the train. My friend, the photographer, he's, he's dead. crazy about yours either. Let's make peace. Take me out of here. Whoever it is is getting desperate. When somebody has committed four murders, he won't hesitate to commit the fifth. is Dario Argento's second film. I don't think I've seen this. It's his Giallo stuff. Well, let's dive into the details here first. Re it's Rotten Tomatoes is another one of those interesting ones. It's 82 critic, 53 <laughs> from the audience. Ooh. Uh, I, you know, it had a budget listed on IMDb, but it's estimated and it says a million dollars. I'm going, I think somebody just plugged that number in because there's no way this is a million dollar movie. <laughs> it costs it costs more than that. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. But it did make, and I love it when the box office is in this form of money, 2.4 billion lira. Which <laughs> is roughly I mean, $1.4 million. Okay. okay. <laughs> so, but as I said, it's directed by Dario Gento, who you might know from Deep Red, Opera, uh, a film he's working on right now called Black Glasses, which if you are a follower of Dario, you've known he hasn't done really great movies for a very long time. <laughs> yeah, but, I just watched his version of Dracula. Like, yeah, I didn't even want to, I didn't, I passed on that one. <laughs> They've got four writers, I'll get a little bit more in this into the, uh, in the notes, but Dario Gento, uh, Luigi Cozy, who directed Lou Ferrigno in Hercules, 
and was the writer director of Star Crash. Oh, cool. Uh, also wrote and directed uh, Paganini Horror, which I've talked about on the show before. And, the, and uh, Dardano Satachi, who wrote uh, 1990, The Bronx Warrior. Oh, yeah. Uh, a movie and a movie also considered by many to be one of the first slashers, A Bay of Blood. And he also wrote Demons and 97 other movies. So wow. Dude wrote a lot. Wow. Uh, stars James Franciscus. Picture in your head the blonde, blue-eyed, 70s, good-looking guy in movies. This is him. Ah. And he is... Uh, all others were built around this man's look. <laughs> uh, he's also in Beneath the Planet of the Apes. Good guys wear black. The Great Sex Wars. And The Last Shark. <laughs> oh. Also starring Carl Malden, who many of you probably know from 120 episodes of the streets of San Francisco, but he was also in Patton, a streetcar named Desire, and a whole lot of stuff. Uh, Catherine Spock, S-P-A-A-K. She's in a, a recently released Severin film, Story of a Cloistered Nun, Murder is a Murder, <laughs> and a whole lot of Italian stuff. So we dive into this movie with a rousing opening credits of flute music. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. All right. Strong start. Yep. In this movie, Carl Mullen plays a blind guy who is walking with a uh, younger girl who um, you assume is probably your daughter, but has a very kind of a uncomfortable setup where he explains later on that He'd gone blind and needed help, and she didn't have any family at all. So they just started living together. <laughs> She's like nine or ten. Like, okay, you guys didn't know each other somehow? Is it, that was all the explanation they gave. It's like, okay. He hears a weird noise out of a car and asks the girl to look at the guy who's in the car. He can't see much of it. But uh, she does see him. This leads into a whole bunch of stuff that happens in the movie. I uh, go back to Carl's uh, place, and I'm not sure if he's designing them or just doing a crossword puzzle, but the way blind people do a crossword puzzle, at least in 1971, is really cool. He's got this huge board laid out with uh, raised um, spots where the the crossword would stop, and then he puts in letters to cross it away, and it looks like he's got a um, key in Braille and do his lower thing to see if he's getting it correct. It's really wild. Wow. He then thinks somebody's broken inside. But now it turns out it's a noise that's outside. It's not in his house. But uh, someone's killed a guard and is looking around and spots Carl. So it kind of feels like he's going after him, but it, he actually isn't. Uh, there's a weird combination of location in this where it almost seems like does he live in the place that was broken into or does he live next to it? Or does the security guard working out front of his building cover his building and this genetic lab that was broken into? So I I'm not entirely certain. If I watch it again, I'll figure that out, but I'm okay not knowing at this point. <laughs> uh, but the killer is surprised and runs away. The next morning, we get to meet the, the new reporter. So there's two reporters in this movie. Carl Mullen's a retired reporter. And then there's a uh, 70s blonde god who's the 
current reporter, uh, James. And he's trying to figure out what's going on. And you got to love 70s journalism where the guy just walks up to a crime scene. and they, Oh, yeah, the people are all up there, gone up. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay. He goes up there and you find out that this is some kind of a genetics lab where they've got, um, they're working the XYY chromosome. Uh, they're, and they're trying to figure out how to make superior people. I actually have some notes in the follow-up on the XYY chromosome. <laughs> I was curious about it. Uh, and to bring in a whole bunch of red herrings, now you get all kinds of new people coming in. You're going, I don't know who this person is. They have a scene or two, and they kind of go away. Um, this is a giallo light, but um, definitely giallo elements, murder mystery. The man at the mini beginning of the car or shows up and the daughter, the girl like recognizes her and you had all that kind of stuff going on. Um, there is a couple moments of like disturbing violence. Like uh, the <clears throat> one of the guys who saw the person who broke in get shoved in front of a train and uh, you see the front of the train hit the guy's head and then he rolls <laughs> as he gets rolled over by the train. It's like, well, all right. You see the beginning of where Dario is going at some point in his career. Sees that picture of the guy. It was reported as the guy fell in. But if, if for some reason, Carl, the blind guy, looks, looks at the photo and thinks, I think this is cropped. I don't think this is the whole photo. And goes to James, the modern reporter, and has him look at the, has a photographer, look at the whole frame and you can see somebody's arm pushed him. And then the photographer guy gets killed. <laughs> so as they're on their way over to see him, whoever the killer is in this knows everything that's going on all the time. Is that um, explained or? Not really. Oh, okay. I mean, it kind of is when you see who he is at the end, but not really. They're investigating, at a later part in the movie, they're investigating something in a graveyard. And there's the two guys talking, and they come up with the idea of let's go to the graveyard, and he's there. Hmm. <laughs> it's like, all righty. <laughs> so uh, there's also a, of course, the guy who runs the Institute has a daughter, older daughter, or is she a sister? Or is he a lover? They really kind of make that vague. Um, but, uh, man, talk about ahead of the time. Look why she looks like she's straight out of studio 54. Whenever she dresses big hair, tight, weird dresses that have no place wandering around in office <laughs> where everybody else is in lab coats. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay. But she has a phenomenal car chase scene through the Italian streets where she, the reporter gets in the car with her. It's like, well, let's lose the cops. And it's, it's a great car chase. <laughs> Let's see. So the genetics, they're trying to say what they're, they initially say they're trying to build the perfect person, but then they're trying to say, no, we're actually trying to find this gene. The XYY is supposed to indicate uh, violent tendencies. So the idea is they want to either, uh, people want to get a hold of it to enhance the qualities of the XYY or to suppress the qualities, depending on who you're talking to. Somebody comes in and poisons the reporter's milk. And they have milk in these weird little three-prong or these weird little um, single-serve cardboard things. 
And uh, so he poisons that. And the nice lady that shows up with the big hair, of course, her and the reporter enjoy each other's company. And as soon as they're done, he stands up and goes, want some milk? (laughs) Oh, my God. Like, what? Uh, so that that was a strange moment. That's a body good. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of running around. Carl Malton disappears for 30, 40 minutes of the movie and comes back because suddenly he has an idea. So he's back in it. There's the usual, you shouldn't be looking into this. Everybody does. Early 70s kind of thing. Um, there is this really weird scene where the... James, the young reporter, is getting a shave. Uh, the newspaper he's reading is, talks about how the, the guy who's the killer might be a barber for some reason because of the way he used a razor. So the, and the music swells. He had all this weird um, uh, suspense about, is the barber going to cut his throat? And, and he doesn't, and you never see the barber again. So like, that was a really well-done scene for absolutely no reason. <laughs> And then later, the other side of that coin happens where they're when they're walking through the graveyard for a long time. It's not very suspenseful at all, has very strange humor into it and goes on for way too long. It's like, this is very bizarre. The rush to the final of the film, where I'll stop talking about is the young girl gets kidnapped. Now they have to find out who took her and how to rescue them. And that's the last half an hour or so of the film. So overall, this actually was a pretty well done giallo, early 70s Italian movie. Um, it wasn't perfect, but you could definitely see where um, Argento's talent was starting up and getting going because there are some. The killer is shown for most of the movie only in two ways either a super, super close up of the eye. So all you're seeing is the color of the eye, and or a first person camera angle. And they're done really well. Because uh, I'm generally not a fan of that first-person stalker look in some movies when it's done. It can be done so poorly. Yeah. And he does it really well. well. Uh, let's see. Taglines. It's nine times more suspenseful. It's <laughs> <laughs> awfully specific. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there you go. From the master of terror who gave you the bird with the crystal plumage, which is his first film. Mm. The picture that out-psychoed Psycho. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> As the body account increases, will no one escape the sting of the cat of nine tails? Ooh. Okay. Anyway, so the James guy, the Lee Junger, uh, graduated magna cum laude from Yale University. Yo, he's, a, he's a smart guy. He is a co-founder of a company called Omnibus Productions that produced Heidi. Uh, Jane, the 68 Heidi, Jane Eyre, David Copperfield, The Red Pony. So he produced a crap ton of classic uh, book-to-movie films that did quite well. Dario Argento and uh, Dardino Sacchini mapped out the plot for Cat and Nine Tales and split the writing a screenplay between them. However, because the production was set up on the basis of the first 40 pages of the script, which were all written by Argento. Argento demanded that he get the sole screenplay credit. Uh, mm-hmm. Being credited for the story alone meant a substantial pay cut for all the other writers that worked on it. 
of which the elementary further there's four. So this set off quite a bitter and uh, public dispute between Dario and the other writers. Cat and Nine Tales was shot between September and October in Tyrian, Piedmont, Italy, which is not a city of Italy I'd heard much about, but oh my God, is it a location for a lot of films. Uh, I think it's like 150 some odd films are set there, including the original Italian job, Born Ultimatum, Suspiria, Deep Red, and Danger Diabolique. Ooh. <laughs> uh, this is uh, Dario's least favorite film of the <laughs> ones he's made, which have you watched your new ones, buddy? Because <laughs> this is a lot better <laughs> than that was that Witches one he did. In- oh, one thing is very <laughs> fun in watching it. It's an English language movie. Obviously, with Carl Malden and James, they're speaking English. All the newspapers and any writing you see on screen is all Italian. Well, I guess I know where this was shot, though. Uh, The original (laughs) theatrical release in the U.S. was cut by 20 minutes. And uh, a lot of the violence and several like that uh, scene I described about the barber were cut. Uh, So a lot and a lot of strange little things were cut to make the movie really hard to understand if you watch the U.S. version originally. And it's kind of complicated as it is watching the full film. Uh, so back to the XYY chromosome. It was discovered in the early 60s. It's a fairly rare genetic condition and for a long time was believed to be an indicator of violence in people, which now is known that's not true. Hmm. But that was the pretense they were going with on the movie. Uh, it's... Uh, people with X or Y chromosomes all also tend to be much taller than average hmm. and do have a larger risk of learning problems. But most people who have that will never know because it really doesn't affect much. It's not a debilitating chromosome abnormality. So um, learn something from watching a Dario movie. Wow. That was my reported movie. Science. <laughs> Uh, the movie that I am talking about this week is the 1994 film Street Fighter. After seven months of fighting, the civil war in Shandalu may have reached the turning point. The capital has just fallen. In December 1994, the forces of freedom will face a power-mad dictator in a struggle for the fate of the world.
Now, I assume you both have seen this movie. Saw this in the theater, I am afraid to say. Wow. Oh, my gosh. I don't think I've seen it. Really? Okay. Well, I feel like this is almost a continuing education for me from Demolition Man. But um, I didn't expect this to be my journalist film until I was uh, watching it because um, movie night and it was not my pick. And I was like, there's a whole journalist plot in this. This is perfect. Oh, yeah, I've seen this one. <laughs> <laughs> so I got pretty stoked about it. Um, uh, so this movie, the critics, the Rotten Tomatoes, uh, critics has it at 12% and audience has it at 20%. So not, not beloved, at least not at the time. Um, the budget was $35 million. Box office was $99.4 million worldwide. So it, it actually did pretty good. Yeah. As far as getting his money back, despite apparently everyone hating it, the writer director is a guy that we have run into before, Stephen E. D'Souza. Uh, he has 41 credits, including writing credits, including uh, Die Hard, Die Hard 2, Running Man, <laughs> talked about, uh, 48 Hours Commando, Flintstones, Judge Dredd, and uh, one of the more recent ones is Laura Croft. Tomb Raider with Angelina Jolie. He also, he started off doing a lot of TV writing um, for things like Gemini Man and Bionic Woman. Uh, His directing, he only actually has six directing credits, um, mostly TV movies and then uh, Tales from the Crypt episode. Not not a ton, but uh, his writing is definitely extremely outstanding and he worked as both on this. It stars... A lot of people. So I'm just going to mention kind of the main ones and then I can talk about what characters are featured in this. (laughs) But the the main one, which I was surprised about because having grown up playing Street Fighter, I was like, why? Why would you, why would this be your hero? But um, Jean-Claude Van Damme plays Guile. Uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme has been in 75 things, including Break-In, as the spectator in the first dance sequence, Monaco Forever, where he plays gay karate man, and Woman in the Twilight Garden, where he plays both a moviegoer and man in garden, uncredited. Um, you might also know him from like Bloodsport, Universal Soldier, Time Cop, etc. Um, co-starring with him is Raul Julia, uh, who plays M. Bison. The, the titular baddie, um, <laughs> difficult difficult to beat. I never beat him personally. Uh, he's been in 51 uh, things, but you would know him from uh, Gomez and the Adams Family. I didn't realize he was also in Eyes of Laura Mars, and he was a regular for one year on Sesame Street in 1971. Wow. Nice. This was his last role before succumbing to um, uh, stomach cancer, um, where he, he ended up having a stroke and passing away before the movie came out. The, uh, and then the third lead for this is uh, Ming-Na Wen, who we were just talking about not so long ago. Um, she plays Chun Li. She's been in 93 things, including Mulan in the Mulan animated film. Um, and also, she's in the book of Boba Fett slash Mandalorian as Fennec Shand. Um, she was also in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. as Melinda May, which I haven't seen enough of, so I didn't realize. But she's had a pretty prolific career, uh, and she plays a very interesting Chun-Li in this. So 
Ryu is in this. Ken is in this. E Honda. Sagat. Sagat's probably the only other actor you might go, hmm, you look familiar. Um, he's played by Wes Studi, who's been in 111 things, including Last of the Mohicans, Mystery Men, Deep Rising, um, Heat. Uh, Simon Callow's in this as a random British guy. Um, and Kylie Minogue is in this as Cammy. Kylie Minogue, the singer. Um, very weird. I didn't realize till the credits were rolling at the end. I was like, Kylie Minogue is Cammy. That's weird. <laughs> That's everything about this is weird. Uh, we also have Tal- Dalsim, Zangri- Zangief, Balrog, um, Blanca, Carlos Blanca. Charlie did not know. I guess that's his name. T Hawk and Vega. There, there is a lot of the characters squeezed in here, and I do mean squeezed in, like people standing around in the background with a clipboard. Hey, buddy. <laughs> hey, T Hawk. How's it going? You're like that's T. Okay, I don't know why you bothered, but all right. Um, the story begins with uh, global news television. Crisis in uh, Shadaloo. We've got Chun Li is on location, walking through an army base, um, giving a lot of exposition about what is going on here in Shadaloo. The military has taken down this small insurgent um, uprising, but that isn't really the main problem. The main problem is uh, that um, there's a narcissistic drug lord turned general named M. Bison who um, is trying to take over the region. Uh, they're on in the location with the allied nations, which is like a fake, I don't know what they are. I think they're meant to be the UN. It's really hard to say. Um, it's like a military group that's fighting against him. They're the good guys in theory. And that's led by um, Colonel Guile. <laughs> um, and the two are really hitting, hitting heads. Um, and it's all kind of come to a boiling point because Bison has captured 63 AN relief workers and is demanding a $20 billion ransom for these. Basically it's like doctors without borders. It's just like all these, you know, really nice people trying to help out. Um, we cut back and forth and see Bison is watching her news program. He's on a floating platform, uh, which it feels very Sonic the Hedgehog, actually. It's just like, it's kind of this weird round thing that's kind of bumping around and he's just standing on it like, yes, look at me in my cape and my red outfit. Here I go up and down around this set. Um, he's watching her talk about the situation while his men are shuffling the hostages around and um, some random captured military bros. We cut back to her. She's trying to interview Guile because he walks past her and he is a dick and he's like, no, I'm not going to talk to you. But then he takes the mic from her and he starts to taunt Bison through it. Um, and Bison gets really pissed. He's like, take over the feed. And so um, he takes over the feed and the news program becomes just those two in like a little like bitching match at each other, um, which is kind of hilarious. In the back back, um, ground, we see Balrog and E Honda are the film team for Chun-Li. And they're like trying really hard to like get the, get everything back on, on track. But um, uh, Bison has really taken it over and is engaged in serious smack talk. Guile really is taunting him. And Bison says, all right, fine. You have three days to give me this money and save these hostages. Otherwise, I'm killing them all. 
Uh, and Guile's like, oh no, hang on, hostages. And then he promises his friend Charlie that he's coming for him, which is bad news because Charlie stood next to M. Bison uh, and is a line <laughs> of people that Bison is looking at their dog tags and then like f- challenging them one-on-one to fights and then just breaking all their necks. And then... <laughs> And he looks at Charlie and he's like, Charlie, huh? I've got plans for you and sends him off somewhere to have something coming uh, his way. It's hard to say what's going to happen at good old, good old Charlie. Um, <laughs> so meanwhile, there are two American con artists, Ryu and Ken, who are wandering into this like underground cage fighting arena. And they're going to do a deal with the arms dealer, Saget. This should all sound very familiar and really not at the same time. (laughs) Uh, They intend to swindle him by selling him fake weapons. And uh, Sagat catches them in the act and basically um, forces Ryu to jump into the cage fight and fight Vega, who's this like super, super handsome cage match champion. And he's got like, just like in the video game, uh, Vega has this sort of... Um, I want to say like shredder, like, or like Wolverine, like pronged weapon attached to his hand. And he has this mask. And the reason he has the mask is that his face is so beautiful. He doesn't want to get it damaged in a fight. And he is the <laughs> plastic gorgeous man for this. There's this moment where Ryu and Ken realize they've been caught out and um, Saget's just like, all right, these weapons, they're great, huh? And then he just has all his men like point them at uh, Ryu and Ken. And he's like, all right fire and all the weapons just fire out tennis balls they're sort of like this sort of you know dog those dog toys were anyway so they're just getting hit with all these tennis balls it's very zany very cartoony and that that definitely sets the tone they they have all the fun like sound effects going on too it sets the tone for the rest of the movie for sure um in the middle of this cage fight guile bursts in with a tank and arrests everyone because they're out past 7 p.m (laughs) <laughs> so really doing the lord's work um, the the an like they're supposed to be the good guys but they really act like a weird mil- military dictator not dictatorship but like military law martial law it's it's really uncomfortable honestly like you don't feel like they're the good guys so of course um that means ryu and ken are now sent off to a um, prison camp Meanwhile, Bison figures out what he's going to do with Charlie. He's going to get Dalsam, the Indian doctor who he has captured to brainwash uh, Mr. Mr. Charlie Blanca, uh, give him a bunch of messed up images. And then they, they have these, like, they roll in this goo and there's like red goo and green goo. And they're like, okay, get to work. We're going to create a killing machine. And they're labeled very meticulously like DNA mutagen on one and anabolic plasma on the other. It's like, all right, this is going to be, I guess we're going to find out how this, you know, semi-handsome, very regular looking dude is going to turn into a green man with red hair. Here we go. Um, By the way, my favorite character from Street Fighter was Blanca. Um, So... (laughs) 
in the prison, in the, the AN prison, Guile sees um, Ryu and Ken are really good at fighting. He They get into a squabble with Sagat's men. And so he recruits them to help him find Bison in exchange for their freedom. They're given this sort of homing device and sort of a, an opportunity to escape with Sagat's men. And Sagat is going to meet up with Bison for some kind of drug deal. Uh, but they're not the only ones who are trying to get at Bison. Also, news reporter Chun-Li has a secret of her own. She is not all that she appears. She is also this kind of cool secret ninja agent oh. who wants to take down Bison. Um, he murdered her father uh, and tried to take over uh, their village when she was a child. He actually failed. Her father kicked Bison's butt. <laughs> but um, uh, with the help of Balrog and Honda, she intends to get her revenge. Um, so she is trying to sneak in to the, the, the sort of deal that's supposed to be going down with Saga and Bison um, and <laughs> dresses up in a sexy magic show with Honda. I, this movie's fucking bonkers. I can't, <laughs> like, I, I'm only in the first 15 minutes of this film, guys. This is like, <laughs> It's nuts. Um, so, of course, shit gets real. Um, essentially, <laughs> Bison tries to buy Saget's military weaponry and whatever that he's trying to buy with Bison dollars, which <laughs> he just opens up this case. He's like, here's all your money. And it's just all these dollars with his face <laughs> printed on them. And Saget's like, uh, what am I looking at? And he's like, they are going to be worth five British pounds when I take over the world. And he's like, uh, but no. So things get really hostile. Uh, and also, of course, Chun-Li has set up explosives around where she's going to blow up all of um, Bison's weapons. And um, Ken and Ryu are sort of caught up in the middle of this. Um, and it all goes haywire, things explode, but ultimately Bison captures them all and puts them in his lair, uh, where he offers Ken and Ryu some really cool brand new Bison clothing and, uh, puts Chun-Li into his dressing room and imprisons Sagat and, um, starts showing them around his place, which is extremely fun because his lair is an over the top bananas dictator's dream wonderland including a hostage pit with a, a computer voice where every time he opens the pit it's like hostage pit opening hostage pit closing <laughs> like somebody programmed that in they knew when they built it that this hostage pit it was going to be a pit for hostages um so once they get to the lair um it, things really sort of Kick, kick into action. Guile decides he's got to go in and rescue everybody. There's no other hope but him. And um, we start to um, get sort of the, the ending big fights of the movie are happening where we have Honda fighting Zangief, Guile's fighting Bison um, once he shows up. Uh, Zalog is fighting no one. Um, Ken and Ryu are, are fighting Saga and Vega. So you kind of end up in this sort of like the heart of Street Fighter style fights. The things that really stood out to me uh, about this film that, that make it really enjoyable. Uh, Raul Julia is incredible. 
he's fucking phenomenal. Like I didn't love him in Adam's family because it's a kid's movie and he's really over the top, but I think I love him a lot more. And now he just throws himself into this performance. I, I've got a couple of, of lines here. So for example, um, he, he presents this like real hatred for the hostages for no apparent reason. Um, and he gives this speech to the host, uh, to the hostages, these aid workers. Um, and he says, you do not deserve a firing squad. No, you shall be killed by a wild beast. He's going to release Blanca on them. And it's like, really? What? Why? What did they do? <laughs> Doctors. Okay. And then he, um, he like all these, you know, metal things shunk up and like an elevator pops up that's supposed to have um, Blanca in it. And he's like, meet the face of your destruction. And it's just so big and over the top. Um, and then as soon as like a uh, guy appears to try and save the hostages, he's like, shoot the hostages. It's like the first thing he says. <laughs> why? Why shoot the hostages? What did they do? It's just so constantly over the top, constantly presenting like this um, really larger than life version of this character that that I, I didn't think physically he was maybe the best match for for Bison, but he he brings so much character that it's just no no comparison. I don't think anyone else could have nailed this. The film overall is just really funny. It shouldn't be. I Most of the film, I was like, this is a stupid movie. This is a stupid movie. <laughs> it is a really stupid movie. It's a stupid kids movie. But it's cheesy and it's insane. And it's also just really great. Like the humor in it, it's just constantly self-aware and parodying itself in a way that I think at the time people didn't realize. Um, the director has even said, you know, he only had one good review for this film at the time, but 25 years later, people finally get it. And he's finally <laughs> getting some positive reviews. There's just some some really great moments. Bison's Lair um, has a lot of chandeliers that are just made of human skeletons. Um, he's got a painting of himself like Napoleon that's huge, as well as next to it, like a painting of him as an artsy clown for, for no reason. Um, his, his suits, like when he gets hurt, his suit starts doing CPR on him. It starts like puffing in and out and it's like initiating CPR. It's like, what is that happening? Jean-Claude is not half-assing it either. He's he's full cocained out Jean-Claude. <laughs> um, so there's a line with him and Cammy where she says, sir, how are you? Like they get on comms together and he says, I'm just half dead. She's like, and Bison? All dead. Spoiler, <laughs> might not all be dead. But it's just really, really bad and really good at the same time. And I think my favorite moment is near the end when um, Zangief is is trying to stop everybody from escaping this um, layer that I guess is going to explode. I can't really remember why, but I, it's just going to. And he didn't realize he was a bad guy. And then DJ tells him, yeah, dude, you know, you're you're the one fighting against freedom. And he's like, wait, what? I thought we were fighting for freedom. He's like, why, why are you fighting with him if he's such a bad guy? And, and DJ's like, well, because he paid me a fortune. And Zangief's like, you got paid? <laughs> so just like really lovely little moments like that. No, it's definitely, it has some issues. Um, the, the characters are all really off. 
they're they're nothing like what you'd expect from the game. Um, e Honda is like not right. It's fine, but he's like Hawaiian, but he also knows the art of Japanese sumo, and it's like, what are you, dude? Like, what is <laughs> happening here? Longest story is really depressing and sad and weird and dawesome. The actor said he literally had no idea what he was supposed to do and who he was supposed to be. And after a while, he just stopped asking questions and just did whatever they told him to do. So there's a lot of like, is Dawson <laughs> good or bad? What's happening here? Why is he keeps having these like heartfelt speeches? But then I thought, okay, I don't know. It's it's very weird. Nice. Chun Li's outfit sucks. Her hair sucks. <laughs> Um, and probably the worst part is Chun Li supposed to spit on Ken at one point, and it's real gross. Like she really spits. There's a lot of fun in there, so that was not super attractive. I would definitely recommend it. I've got a little bit of trivia that I feel like I gotta I gotta mention. It's it, this film was crazy. This film was fucking crazy. Um, first of all, it was shot in Thailand and in Australia with pickups that they had to end up getting in Canada. There were huge problems shooting in Thailand. Um, there were massive rainstorms that were killing their electronics, uh, their electrics all the time. So they'd be like starting off the day, you know, plugging in their lights and then everything would just go out and they wouldn't be able to fix it. Um, they were in a giant space where they were promised they could build all these big sets, but it had a metal roof. So during the rainstorms that were happening, it was just like, yeah, huge metallic sounds happening the whole time. Um, there was also this strange, like civil unrest going on at the same time. So they had this whole helicopter scene where, um, uh, Guile was supposed to come in and attack Bison via helicopters. And they had to scrap the whole thing because they were afraid that it was going to give people concerns that there was a coup happening in the city. (laughs) And so they had to change it to a boat race instead. So then out of nowhere, all of a sudden Guile's like in a boat and he's like, I'm going to get you. I'm in my boat (laughs) that you haven't seen before. (laughs) Don't worry. It becomes invisible. So very fun. Um, They decided to go ahead and do a bunch of reshoots in Australia, uh, which had its own set of issues because the director, um, they they were really behind schedule. Um, Unfortunately, with Julia having just kind of had some medical procedure for his cancer, nobody knew this, I guess. And so he showed up on set and he was really underweight and very, very low energy. And he was giving it his all, but he couldn't do any of the fight scenes up front. They had to they had to move those all to the back of the shooting schedule. So they just got further and further behind. And then everything in Thailand was forcing it to get behind schedule. So when they started shooting in Australia, the director took all the uh, dra- dramatic scenes and split off and was like, okay, I'm going to shoot all this stuff here. And he told his stunt coordinator to get all the stunt stuff in um, a nearby studio. And the stunt coordinator was not on the same page and decided that the actual Street Fighter moves looked very unrealistic and uncool. So all the stuff he shot, he decided to shoot as like real stunts, but with a bunch of actors who don't know how to do fighting. And so it looked really, really bad. And um, and of course, it was not true to the game at all. And so the director was severely pissed and almost got into a giant um, fist fight with the uh, stunt coordinator. So that was fun. 
On top of it, Van Damme was horrible to work with. He really was on coke, like hardcore. Um, He was doing about $10,000 worth of cocaine a week. He decided to go ahead and have sex with Kylie Minogue for reasons. Um, He was constantly disrupting the film. He would not come out of his trailer. He had a huge ego. Um, And then uh, when he did come out, he would bring like alcohol to set and then they were like, okay, we're going to get him like a minder. We're going to get like a guy who like goes around with him and make sure he gets everywhere on time. But then the guy was just as bad as he was. And they both were just like fucking <laughs> off a new coke together and being like their, their budget just got more and more dwindled and dwindled. So they were just kind of trying to fly through this film. And a lot of stuff sort of ended up looking a little bit cheaper and low budget, even though it technically wasn't. Uh, Raul Julia was um, accompanied by his family on set since he was terminally ill. Um, He was always focused and ready to work, though. He only took the role because his children were huge fans of the Street Fighter games. This seemed to be consistent. Pretty much every single person on the behind the scenes uh, stuff for the film, they all were like, oh, I took it because my kids really love the game. My kids spent a thousand quarters on this game, so I thought I'd do it. Um, um, Julia researched dictators and crime lords to mimic the traits for M. Bison, notably Mussolini's hand gestures, Stalin's mannerisms, and Hitler's love of art. He approached the role with a Shakespearean tone using Richard III as an influence, and you can really, really tell. Um, Director Suiza deferred his salary to pay uh, for his cast. There was a big jump freeze at the end where all the all the characters go, wah, and they like are still in frame um, and it mimics um, the end of the the video game. So very good stuff there. Capcom thought that the film was awesome. They they loved the end result. Um, Unfortunately, uh, Ming-Na Wen said she cringed after seeing the finished (laughs) film um, for the first time. And she told her ER co-star, George Clooney, that she feared... um, uh, that she had basically tanked her career. Clooney casually remarked, oh, honey, it takes a lot to kill a career. I should know. Um, <laughs> and she said later she has actually fond memories of the film. Um, so yeah, that was that was Street Fighter. It, I definitely recommend it, especially if you're feeling crummy and you just want to like <laughs> watch something to make yourself feel better. I think that it's a really, really, really great pick and it's zany. It's a definitely a kid's film, but it's fucking fun. And, and seriously, like Raul Julia is incredible. He's incredible. Like I've rewatched it fast forwarding just to his scenes and everything he says is amazing. I, I might have to give this a rewatch. Yeah, I think you should. Yeah. There's there's an edition that, um, uh, like a special edition version of the Blu-ray right now that you can get that comes with. Um, it's got like it's a steel book with uh, Raul Julia dressed up as Bison, dressed up as Napoleon on the back that painting, and then inside it has a Bison book. So <laughs> it's been given a pretty loving treatment recently. I remember being very underwhelmed when i saw the movie yeah. uh and i could i you know every red-blooded american male liked van damme and i remember thinking because sure. i do remember getting the joke but i didn't feel like van damme got the joke while he was making the movie no. i don't think he did i don't think he i don't even know if he knew what movie he was in frankly yeah. he, he seemed to not really get that 
until he did that movie, JCVD. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, you are self-reflecting on what an ass you were for a long, long time. Right. right. I didn't watch it because I was afraid it would be like a big eco fest. It's really good. It's a wild, interesting reflection of a weird actor. Well, even more fun, he did that um, that brief series that was like six episodes. I don't remember what it was for, YouTube or something, where he played himself, but he was also a secret agent that got oh, dropped yes. in. That was really and good. That was a fun show. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, Eric, as you know, I um, I waffled back and forth on what to do for journalists and then finally realized I had to do a movie that has the greatest genre journalist of all time, Carl Kolchak. Oh, and of course. I chose, uh, from 1973, The Night Strangler. Is it possible for one man to have been responsible for a series of unsolved homicides spanning a period of over a century? Watch The Night Strangler, a chilling story of suspense starring Dara McGavin on the Tuesday movie of the week. Oh, my God. I have yet to watch them, but I did just pick the Kino Barber, whatever he said, put out a phenomenal set of the whole series and the two movies well the two movies are good the series is is pretty awful (laughs) oh no yeah but the two movies are good um no budget or box office because this was a uh, made for tv movie rotten tomatoes critics have that at 100 percent wow the audience has it at 85 (laughs) percent It was directed by Dan Curtis, who is the creator of Dark Shadows. He also directed Burnt Offerings, the Trilogy of Terror, the Night Stalker, of course, which was the first movie of this. It was written by Richard Matheson, possibly only second to Stephen King in having his stories adapted to film and TV. Um, He did The Incredible Shrinking Man, uh, all of your favorite episodes of The Twilight Zone. He (laughs) wrote uh, Duel, Spielberg's first big one, Um, the Trilogy of Terror. TV movie, uh, Stir of Echoes, I Am Legend, What Dreams May Come, probably will be best remembered for his script of Jaws 3D. (laughs) (laughs) I did not realize I was him. Starring Darren McGavin, 183 credits, tons of television. He was also in Raw Deal, Dead Heat, Hangar 18, but will probably always be known as the old man in A Christmas Story. Uh, Joanne Flug, who was in the film MASH and Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, and just every episode of any show in the 70s and 80s, she was in all of them. And then Simon Oakland as Vincenzo, uh, 162 credits, including Bullet, West Side Story, and the original Psycho. Just really quickly, I will say uh, three other names who are in this. Margaret Hamilton, who was the Wicked Witch of the West in uh, Wizard of Oz. Uh, Richard Anderson, who was Oscar Goldman in The Six Million Dollar Man, and Grandpa Al Lewis is in this, who was, of course, Grandpa in The Munsters. So, as you may remember, Carl Kolchak used to live in Las Vegas, where he was a reporter who was following the exploits of a serial killer that turned out to be a vampire, all of which you can see in the excellent movie The Night Stalker, which I spoke about, I think, in our TV movie episode. So... Um, well, now he lives in Seattle, Washington. <laughs> yeah. And when he finds out that his former boss, Vincenzo, also works for the newspaper in Seattle now, he begs for a job and gets handed a series of grisly stranglings, all women, all exotic dancers who are missing a few ounces of blood each. 
And they also all have traces of rotting flesh found on their neck. So, of course, Kolchak's like, I know this story. Vampire. Uh, he's back on the case doing what he does best. He starts putting together a bunch of uh, people who can help him research what's going on. And one of those people is this Seattle historian who, uh, through his research, discovers that there was a rash of very similar killings back in 1952. So this sends Kolchak to the police who are understandably stonewalling him when it comes to giving him any information. He manages to swindle his way into their evidence um, reports and stuff like that and finds out that there was another rash of similar murders in 1931. And he's able to start piecing together all of the similarities. It's um, the same amount of women are being killed um, over a specific amount of days, 18 days, and then nothing for a space of 21 years. So he's like, ah, this is the same killer somehow who's over a hundred years old, all this stuff. Um, it gets, it gets pretty silly, of course, uh, <laughs> because Kolchak is able to make a pretty big leap where he figures out that the killer must be doing something with the blood that allows him then to not need to kill for 21 years at a stretch. And uh, he even finds an old interview with Mark Twain, which I really enjoyed, which <laughs> leads him to a picture of a civil war doctor who is a spitting image of a doctor that Kolchak is suspicious about in our time oh, and the guy's name is like malcolm richards or something and of course the doctor's name is richard malcolm like, mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah it's like whenever you find that guy who's uh his last name is alucard there you go it, yes. it takes it takes somebody <laughs> seeing it in a mirror to go oh my god his that's, name is dracula <laughs> that's exactly what i thought of when you said that. <laughs> um so working with the help of an exotic dancer, they race against time because they've only got now a certain amount of days left. And the killer has to have one more strangling and a small amount of blood. So um, they, they're racing against time to stop him before he kills and then just disappears for 21 years. It's really a pretty great story, um, even though it is very reminiscent of the structure of the Night Stalker. But it's also just very reminiscent of. 1970s tv movies you know it's every 15 minutes there's a commercial and all of this stuff you're just like oh boy it's very very uh you know by the minute you're you're watching this and you're like oh dun 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 and you know uh, because i'm watching the actual movie it just goes to black and comes back in but you can tell that was a commercial break there is an amazing scene where kolchak takes the underground tour and then breaks off from the tour group to investigate stuff. And let me tell you guys, when I first saw this, I was about 11 years old. And when I found out the Seattle Underground was real, I was fucking fascinated. And then you can also understand how disappointed I was when I finally took the tour as an adult. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yep. For those of you who don't know, in 1889, the very young city of Seattle had a massive fire. And instead of clearing everything up, it was decided to build the new city on top of the remains of the old because the old city would flood pretty regularly anyway. And they were just kind of like, let's just take care of this. So they constructed new sidewalks and buildings and even streets one or two stories above the ground. In 1907, just before the World's Fair in Seattle, and if you don't know about the 1909 Alaska-Yukon Fair, it is fucking amazing. I have a huge book. This just full of pictures of what Seattle looked like during the fair. Oh, cool. and, and you would be like, where is all of this shit? <laughs> just like, you know, 1909 after the World's Fair, it all, you know, went away. Went away. Yeah. A lot of it is still at the uh, UW, like the huge fountain at the, the University of Washington that was built for the World's Fair. 
Oh, weird. Yeah, so it's, it's really cool. It's kind of weird to think of what the World's Fair was versus, you know, it's really nothing anymore. But boy, at the time, yeah, that was a giant event whenever it went on. Yeah. Uh, Vanessa, remind me, next time we do this in person, I'll bring out that book and let you just look through it. And you're going to be like, Ooh. I had no idea that this was happening. That's anyway, so exciting. Um, just before that happened, they um, the city decided to condemn the underground because for fear of the bubonic plague. Well, thanks. Oh. So um, all of this makes for really interesting visuals in the film until you realize that the city of Seattle was a bunch of one and two story wooden shacks back then. And the problem with this is that movies like this and even Malignant last year, uh, <laughs> they show the underground city as if it's a city in a gigantic cavern. Yeah. Uh, and it's just not the case. No, it's so, it's like a floor. <laughs> yeah. So in this movie, Kolchak and the Night Strangler are wandering the deserted streets of a city with buildings extending, you know, five or six stories up and made to look like <laughs> New York back in the 1890s. It's oh my. really cool looking and nothing like what the actual Seattle underground looks like, um, which is still fun because you can take the tour and in spots you can look up and see the glass plates in the sidewalk. The whole reason those were put there were to allow light to come down because because the, the stores and everything were still sometimes doing business in the underground area. And at the very least, we're using it as, you know, basement storage and shit like that. Um, it's really, really cool. It's uh, also a super cool movie. I liked it much better on this viewing that I did when I was 11, because I think I wanted it to be a vampire again. And in, in the end, it turns out to just be a guy who's um, using a couple of ounces of blood. And, and of course, because he doesn't get his couple of ounces in the, a lot of time he needs, um, he immediately starts aging on, on screen. Um, trivia. At the end of the film, Kolchak is telling Vincenzo and Louise Harper, who is the, um, the exotic dancer, now also both out of work, thanks to him, that he's going to drive them to New York City and that they'll love New York. So uh, Dan Curtis and Richard Matheson had actually planned to do a third Kolchak movie set in New York City. In New York, Kolchak was going to discover that Janos Garzini, the vampire from the first film, was not only not dead, but actually active as a serial killer again. And this film was going to complete a planned trilogy of Kolchak movies entitled The Trilogy of Terror. When that didn't happen, Matheson and Dan Curtis used that title for their uh, very famous third, or, uh, trilogy TV movie. When that didn't happen, when they passed on that, the next planned third installment in the franchise was going to be called the night killers was scripted, but before they could get to work on it, ABC opted to actually go to series with the show. So instead of a third TV movie, it got a full series, oh. but this one, the plot had Vincenzo hiring Kolchak to work for him in Honolulu. And while he's there, Kolchak discovers a cover-up involving UFOs, a nuclear power plant and important people being murdered and replaced by androids, which oh sounds very much like the, uh, Future world. Future world. Storyline. So uh, that sounds incredible. But in yeah. Hawaii. But in Hawaii, yeah. Yeah. Um, the Seattle Underground Network scene in the film was shot not on the genuine downtown Pioneer Square location. What? On a universal soundstage plus LA's Bradbury building. Just so you <laughs> know how ridiculous this is. Uh, when Vincenzo takes Kolchak off the Night Strangler case in this movie, he assigns him to cover the Daffodil Festival in Puyallup. Which I oh loved. my god! <laughs> and in real life, Darren McGavin was Kolchak. Spent his childhood and teenage years in the Puget Sound area and attended Puyallup High School. So I loved that. 
Oh, cool. oh my God. So he knew. Yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm sure that came from him. That part of the script had oh, to come yeah. from him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then finally, producer Dan Curtis and screenwriter Richard Matheson were both approached by Universal to work on the TV series of The Night Stalker. And although they had both worked on both of the made-for-TV movies, they both turned down the offer because they were not keen on the Monster of the Week formula. <laughs> that is my movie, The Night Strangler. Wasn't which... there a X-Files that was largely based on that concept of somebody disappearing and coming back like a killer? I know that, um, that uh, Kolchak kind of appears in one yeah. of the early X-Files episodes. He's not named Kolchak, but he shows up kind of in his uh, his outfit. Right. And um, uh, Mulder refers to him when he's telling Scully about him. He says, you know, look, the, the X-Files wouldn't even exist without this guy. And I thought that was a really neat little oh, nod cool. to the fact that the Night Stalker was obviously the inspiration for the X-Files. That's nice. Cool. Yeah. Uh, Darren McGavin is just so goddamn likable in everything that, you know, watching him do this, um, I did like that there was some there was some really cool stuff shot in Seattle. So there's a lot shot right outside um, one of the gigantic buildings at the UW and stuff like that. But most of the downtown stuff um, you can clearly see is is sleazy 70s Los Angeles. Yeah. So. But I, but there's just neat little drops of you know if you're if you're a local where they're talking about you know um, she's leaving her um, her nightclub job in Pioneer Square but she's taking the bus up to Shoreline which is where her apartment is and stuff like that and I'm like of course that all makes sense <laughs> nice so that was my movie that was my journalist um, I think that is the end of the show right Vanessa has to pick our next subgenre that's right. Yeah, that is right. Um, so for for my subgenre, um, I thought we could do something a little bit a little bit fun and go with. <laughs> now I have to remember what I. What I <laughs> oh, I love how you were playing with the time there. And I, I was, with... I was thinking of an interesting concept, and I know you'll all enjoy it. <laughs> you'll really like my idea. It's a very good one. Remember? Mind control. Mind control. Thank you. Yeah, mind control. Mind control or, yeah, the hypnosis. Hypnosis. Oh, hypnosis. That's what it was. Hypnosis or mind Wow. Why do I know your pick better than you? Because you read it and thought about it more recently than I did. Maybe. Or maybe. Mind control. Yes. yes. Somebody <laughs> has taken away my memory of my own topic. <laughs> okay. Well, oh my God. <laughs> let's do that for next week. This is the part where I thank everybody for uh, participating in the value for value model and really want to thank. Um, I got a lot of, you know, last episode I revealed that I had COVID and I got a lot of people sending me, um, you know, private messages and stuff. Hey man, hope you're feeling okay and all that stuff. Nice. Thank you guys uh-huh. very much. It never got to the point where it was more than just a really bad cold for me. So I appreciate everybody's concern, but I am just fine. And uh, thanks for reaching out to me. Thanks for liking and sharing posts. Thanks for uh, sending money our way. Thanks for buying Strange Eons merchandise and all of that stuff. We really, really can't thank you enough. 
and Carlos may have some to sport next time you see him. Oh, really, Carlos? <laughs> Boy, we're going to have to start mentioning our other friends who have podcasts, you know, the Bone Bad podcast. Yeah, Bone Bad. Uh, <laughs> Friday Night Friday, Fright Fest. Yeah. <laughs> all of, uh, sorry, we're not giving you guys equal time, uh, but, you know, please, if you haven't um, taken the time to go to Apple Podcasts and drop a review off for us, you know, that really is the biggest thing you can do that costs nobody any money. Yeah. So, yeah. And while you're there, um, tell Eric what shitty movie you want him to watch and talk about. Always ready yeah. to watch crap. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Well, shall we um, do this in person for sure next week? Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yep. Let's do that. And uh, so I will see you guys next week. I'll see the listeners uh, right after that. And um, <laughs> let's, let's say goodbye. See you. Bye. Brain Geons Radio is artisanal quality podcasting, handcrafted with all natural ingredients, and edited to perfection by Eric Morgret. Our blistering theme song is Strange Eons Part 1 by the band Nightshade and is used with permission. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider dropping a positive review on Apple Podcasts. I guess normally I see you've probably had a glass or two of wine, so your face is a little bit more rosy.